That was Leave a Light On by Tom Walker. You're listening to Tune FM on 106.9. We've got a very special guest in the studio today. I am joined by a PhD student here at the University of New England, John Ahera. So welcome and thank you for sitting down with us in the studio. Thank uh, you for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. So as a PhD student, obviously, uh, some students, well, most students wouldn't quite be aware of what you're studying. So John is studying a PhD, obviously, in peace studies with yes. a focus on political violence. Yes. Is there any particular country that you are focusing on and, or is it just political violence in general? Uh, my focus is on uh, Kenya and South Africa. Yep. Even though I'm hoping to make uh, generalizations to the rest of the continent okay. with my conclusions. So what? Um, obviously your field of research would be quite extensive because political mm-hmm. violence is quite a large uh, problem everywhere in the world at times, not just um, in the African continents. What exactly, what led you to uh, want to research that particular uh, idea? What led you, to, what drew you into uh, want to study political violence or peace studies rather? Uh, thank you. Uh, this is basically influenced by my previous work. Okay. I used to work as a program manager of a peace building program uh, in South Africa with an organization that worked uh, throughout Africa. And during the course of my time, those four years, I was working with the teams that were assisting mediation support units of the African Union and uh, regional economic communities such as uh, the um, East Africa community and so on and so forth. And I noticed that during the mediation processes, people are not paying attention to the role of political parties in power structures. When people would negotiate peace deals, for example, they deal with power issues, but they don't seem to focus on what political parties do. Yes. So that's the niche that I thought maybe we should really pay attention to what political parties actually do, because eventually they're the ones that mobilize people and fracture society, and this leads to violence. Of course. So. Um, in obviously Kenya and Australia are two very different countries. Um, our political systems are, or political parties rather, are different inherently. Mm-hmm. What uh, has, since moving to Australia to mm-hmm. move to UNA to study? Have you what have you seen any similarities between the uh, Kenyan political um, situation and the Australian political situation? Um, uh, maybe it's, let me say three. I mean, for Kenya, South Africa, and uh, Australia. I noticed that, um, of course, there's political systems within Kenya and, uh, I mean, between South Africa and Australia are quite similar Okay. in the sense of them using a proportional representation. Kenya, on the other hand, uses a fast-past-the-post kind of um, system where the winner takes it all. Right. And uh, maybe that's what makes it very competitive in Kenya because everybody wants to win. Yes. Yeah, everybody wants to win. And when you win, you and your network wins and you lock out the rest of the people for another five or so years. Whereas in Australia, I'm told that um, you might lose an election at the federal level, but at a regional level, your party still is in control of certain municipalities or certain, um, you know, governments. It's quite a common Yeah, it's quite uh, a common And in that case, everybody feels as though we have won something. Yes. Everybody seems to have won. So I guess that's what makes it the case that it's very contested, hotly contested in Kenya in comparison to um, Australia. So obviously, uh, focusing on Kenya and South Africa, yeah. um, the 2017 Kenyan election, which yes. um, some listeners may not be aware, yes. was 
quite chaotic, I think, is a good word to use. Chaotic is good. Of course, the, um, the, for yeah. anybody that's not aware, um, the first election that was held was declared invalid yes. by the Kenyan Supreme Court, who yes. essentially they said that the election was not conducted in a manner that was uh, fitting, uh, that was... Uh, uh, obeying the constitution yes so it was unlawful and yeah. uh, I'll so just to clarify for listeners that aren't aware yeah. what exactly happened in the second election um, in the second election because when the court made its ruling yes. it's indicated that the next elections need to be held within 60 days and uh, when the preparations were being made those issues that the courts pointed out as fundamental uh, the opposition felt that they had not been resolved so the opposition decided to um, not to participate in the elections based on the fact that they felt that the same rules or the same issues that were there in the first place were going to be repeated, yes. thereby actually rigging them out. That's what they did, and then they refused to participate and actually called on their, part, um, on their supporters not to vote. So that brought in a legitimacy issue. Because um, I read in the when I was doing some research on the election and the the fallout of the first election and the circumstances surrounding the second one, of mm-hmm. course the individual that won the first election yeah. that was then declared invalid, yeah. also like you said, um, he went on to win the second election because yes. the opposition pulled out, yeah. and the turnout rate was only thirty eight percent or some yes. something to that nature. Yeah. Does Kenya have does Kenya have any rule of uh, having a minimum voter turnout for an election to be valid? or not? Um, the rule that is there um, states that for somebody to win an election, you have to have, um, of the total number of votes cast, you have to have more than 50% mm-hmm. in the national vote. And then in addition to that, you must get uh, at least 25% of the votes in 24 counties. Okay. So there's no, it's not stated that uh, 50% of people, total voters must vote for it to be valid or not. No, it's just fulfillment I see. of those th- criteria. So even though the turnout was low, the person who eventually won actually fulfilled that criteria set out in the constitution. I see. But as I said, more than 50% of uh, registered voters stayed away. So that brought in a legitimacy question and of course, the next um, election is scheduled to be held in 2022. Yes. Uh, five, oh, well, I should say three years from this year, since we are in the early stages of 2019 at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Since the second election, um, when, like you said, the legitimacy of the election was questionable, yeah. has there been any sort of civil unrest or civil uprising against the government? Yeah. Um, soon after um, the second election, which the, the incumbent won, the opposition called many mass actions. And the high watermark of that was on 30th or 31st of January when the opposition leader declared himself as the people's president. Hmm. And that brought in a lot of commotion because now the government started clamping down and there was a lot of people who were killed and arresting opposition members and also basically clamping down on civil rights, including the media. Media stations were shut down. So it was a very tricky period in time. And this went on until around March. So there was a lot of uncertainty, I remember, because I was doing my data collection then, and I could not move easily. And even speaking to people was difficult because of the political nature of my research. Of course. But, uh, however, in March, uh, we saw a very sudden turn of events when the opposition leader and uh, the president, apparently they had been talking behind the scenes 
and how to de-escalate. And suddenly they just shook hands publicly and said, from today, moving forward, we are going to work together for national unity. So suddenly they left their supporters wondering what's going on. Of course. And that really led to a sudden de-escalation of those um, views by both parties. And as, we, as it stands today, I think they're the best of bodies to the public eye. And uh, I think it's a good thing working in cooperation as opposed to in competition. Of course. Because there are certain things such as uh, the fight against corruption, encouraging national unity in a country that has 42 tribes, uh, ethnicities, then that kind of working in cooperation uh, helps. And uh, has the violence, uh, the political violence rather in Kenya and the civil unrest uh, mm. reduced as a result of that public display of cooperation? Yes, it has reduced significantly. That's good. Uh, but you also have to notice that these things are always cyclical. So oh, it's, yes. we, are not, we are not assured that in 2020 or 2019, I mean uh, 2021, when you're heading 2022, that they will again go apart. Yes. And then uh, mobilize their own ethnicities to go against each other. So flipping over to South Africa, yes. um, which is the second country uh, yeah. in your research that you focus on, of course, um, South Africa's former president, uh, Mr. Jacob Zuma, yes. is no longer the president yes. um, because of obviously a scandal that uh, yeah. a lot of people are, now are aware of. Yeah. So the next uh, South African uh, election, I yeah. believe, is in 2021. But I might be mistaken. No, it's actually this year. That's this year, sorry, it's 2019. This year. Yes. Yeah. And a similar question in regards to, compared to Kenya, is there an is there an, more of the same sort of situation where there's um, political turmoil and mm. opposition to the extent that it's bringing in uh, mm. ethnicities against others and more civil mm. unrest and uh, civil, I guess, turmoil is the best way to, you, to describe it. Yeah. Um, in South Africa, every uh, there's also a cyclical occurrence of violence we, and the peak is normally t when you're heading towards election. But the only different thing in South Africa is that the violence that happens is intra-party, mm. not inter-party. In Kenya it is inter-party violence or inter-party instigated violence. But what we see happening a lot more in South Africa is intra-party violence. Uh, and the, this affects mostly the ruling party, the African National Congress. So this is because mostly that uh, when parties are preparing their party lists, I think you do that in, uh, in Australia also, a party develops its list, yes. which if you win number of a, number, a proportion of the uh, votes, it will get a certain number of seats. So within the parties themselves, they clamor to control the process of development of this list. So let's say um, you project that you're going to have, you're going to win 30% of the votes. So if you're number 31 on that list, you know that if you hit number 1 to 29, you're going to go up the list, mm. for example. So this happens across the board that people eliminate those that they think are their people who, who will lock them out of the list. And the reason for that is that these parties, when they win, especially the municipalities, they control tenders. So if I win, if I'm in the list, I will influence um, the tendering process and I will benefit my network. So it goes beyond just the, 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 the getting to become on the list, but there are more benefits yes. that come later. So it's intra-party, but that violence is there. 
to the extent that um, I think in one year you can find at least 25 prominent people, councillors, killed in one province. Mm. If that happens in any country in Africa, there will be a civil war. So that's that's how much uh, this uh, happens. I think since my, my last check was that since 1994, within one province alone, there are more than 100 high-level political killings in one wow. province. That is KwaZulu-Natal. So if you extrapolate this, I'm sure the figures will be. And these are h- prominent people. So I'm not talking about low-level party supporters. These are people in office. Mm. Yes. That's that's quite horrifying. That's, uh, it is. In one single province. Yes. That's terrifying, really. Yes. Yeah. Um, obviously, since you do have such an extensive knowledge of the political scene in both countries, such mm. is the nature of your research, do you would you like to see a lot more... Uh, people taking an interest in politics, especially when uh, it does, it, when the political scene is so chaotic and fragmented that yeah. it does lead to violence. Do you, would you like to see a reduction in the political apathy that we see a lot of nowadays, especially in Australia? Um, yes, I, yes, indeed, uh, especially in Australia. And my starting point would be that um, there is not so much conversations about peace building in in in, in Australia. And I would say, for example, when you look at uh, the research in Australia, it's not peace building is not classified as a standalone discipline. Mm-hmm. So when I publish a paper, for example, and I'm asked for the FOR codes, I would pick one from political science or from sociology or from philosophy. Why not have one specifically on peace building? When that is put, when the Australia Research Council puts that in there, then it means it's, there's going to be a lot more visibility. Mm-hmm. And when that visibility happens, people continue conversing. And that kind of conversation percolates into policy, for example, into the Australian uh, foreign policy, which can then go to the United Nations Security Council so that they can allocate more funds for peace building. At the moment, at that level, more funds are allocated for peacekeeping, which is a response to volatile situations. But I think that it's better, it's easier and cheaper to prevent conflicts rather than to try to mitigate them. Of course. Yeah. But that happens if people continue uh, conversing yes. around the same issues. So that's why I um, keep talking about political parties and peace building, hoping that it will gain traction and contribute to these conversations, which will translate into policy. Prevention is always better than cure. Exactly. So... Um, <laughs> Obviously, like I said, Australia, we've never had, at least not in recent times, we've not had a political situation as volatile as, you know, as is seen in other countries. We've never had, I guess, sort of civil unrest or civil violence Mm. and, you know, rioting in the streets as a result of uh, political actions or elections or whatnot. We've been quite fortunate in that respect. I think as a result of that, uh, Mm. there are a lot of Australians that are unaware of how bad Mm. um, the situations can be in other countries and how bad the political... Uh, scene can be in countries that they don't have any experience of. Yeah. When uh, you are researching, when doing a research uh, into your PhD, mm. is one of your goals to try and get more people aware of what is happening in these countries so that, like you said, mm. uh, more people can sort of realise mm. what's going on and how to potentially rectify the situation? 
Yes, indeed, and uh, that's why I'm I'm happy that I'm pursuing this degree in Australia as opposed to in Kenya because it means that I'm more likely to influence a lot more people yes. than I would in Kenya. Of course, uh, and um, uh, also influence the, the, the uh, there's a lot of funding that could come from Australia that goes into into the developing countries, and um, my research could influence how that funding goes, for example. Yes. If they're going to prioritize astronomy, for example, I could, through my research, they could see, for example, that why not invest a little more in peace building? In that case, it's going to save a lot of lives because if you, uh, for example, conceptualize a program where you encourage political parties to consistently talk to each other, then you can see how by talking, there can be a reduction in political violence in an election. So that's what that's the kind of thing I'm hoping to do, to encourage conversations where it matters, in spaces that it matters, amongst people that are highly likely to influence policymakers in Kenya. So that by that conversation, the, um, the mutual suspicions that we have every five years that leads to violence can sort of reduce. I see. Yes. That's quite a, um, well, it's a very quite a noble reasoning behind wanting to research this particular topic. Yes. Um, I guess um, I was going to ask you a question relating mm. to Australia, but mm. I uh, would like to just point out the point that you made about uh, taking money that, mm. like, f- for example, putting it into uh, foreign aid or whatnot. Yes. Um, taking it from one point to foreign aid. There's mm. a lot, um, I know there's a lot of people in Australia at the moment that mm. take issue with. Um, the amount of foreign aid that we do yes. spend. A lot of people would prefer to see it put in mm. um, back into Australian programs and whatnot. I think yeah. what those people might be missing or yeah. might not be understanding is if m- if money was invested in the right way yes. and into programs and, um, uh, yeah, programs to ease the tensions yeah. in those countries and reduce, like you said, the political violence and yeah. initiate conversation between people, mm. a lot of the issues in those countries that sort of flow onto Australia would be reduced. Mm-hmm. So it's a worthwhile... I do agree. I mean, we live in this day and age in a highly globalised world now, Yes, more than ever before. So something very limited, for example, like the recent uh, terrorist attack in Kenya happens and you find, I mean, you had an Australian died there and the attack happened quite close to the Australian High Commission in Nairobi, for example. So such a thing, the waves move across the country. And the more these kinds of things continue to happen, the more there will be forced migration. Yes. And these forced migration come with their own challenges, as you can see what's happening in Syria. If people just keep quiet and let where the, the killings continue to happen. People are going to move in search of security and livelihood. It's in human nature. It's been happening throughout history. Yes. But uh, if we become good neighbors in a globalized manner, then you'll be thinking that with my life, let me not live in uh, too much luxury when our neighbors on the other side of the continent, uh, of the world, are suffering because eventually they will come to this little small space and... Uh, that would be my problem at that particular time. So I think the nature of the world as it is at the moment, you cannot, no single country can turn a blind eye to what is happening 
in another country because eventually to become both of your problems. That's how I would look at it. That's actually, um, it's very well said and you, you managed to strike on two um, particular things I wanted to bring up. So okay. kudos, uh, well done. The <laughs> first you. one, of course, was um, the, just the point about um, mm-hmm. the Syrian crisis and what's happening. Yeah. The, you, if all people need to do to look at the issue of forced migration, as you said, was yeah. look at the crisis that befell Europe um, yeah. uh, recently. Obviously, there are, there are so many people that are so looking many. to yeah. escape. Yes abhorrent Mm -hmm. situations you know fleeing from syria fleeing from those countries that are just rife with conditions that are pretty much unlivable yeah um so i think yeah i would agree that a lot of um a lot of issues can be resolved if countries did more yeah even if it doesn't even if people can't see the benefits to their own country in the short term yeah the benefits will be there in the long term. Definitely in the long and, uh, term. And another point before I forget, if, I mean, people have uh, blamed, for example, the activities of the U.S. in what is happening in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria, and the forced migration, those are the negative way of doing things, the militarized way. But this is a good way of, 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 of doing things. Uh, I mean, aid can also help in reversing what's, I mean, showcasing that um, foreign influence does not necessarily mean that you're going to cause a conflict. Yes. It also means that you're making the world a better place. And that is part of uh, humanity, if you want to look at it that way. So um, by investing in um, uh, uh, people not uh, killing each other in, one, in South Sudan, in a party of South Sudan, for example, I, I don't necessarily see how that would be a bad thing to bring those people to nearly close level to having some level of dignity. Yes. Especially in a country such as Australia where most people live at a tertiary level, if not secondary level of needs. In some of those countries, they do not have basic needs, which of means course. you do not have food, you do not have shelter, you do not have clothes. And a lot of these things have to do with political problems which are also entangled with the global politics. I do think um, a lot of people in countries that are, uh, I guess, well, first world countries, countries that are mm. uh, in a better, that are living in a better state compared to other countries, yeah. they don't necessarily know how exactly how fortunate they are and how well they have it compared yeah. to other countries. Like you said, they don't have food, don't have clean water, yeah. don't have shelter. Yeah. Um, and I was going to, there's one point I want to go back to, but... Yeah. Before I do that, I wanted sure. to ask you a question because yeah. you, you just brought it up um, yeah. in the last thing you said. Can, when you consider uh, what needs to happen yes. and what should be happening to yes. bring this conflict in mm-hmm. countries with political violence and political turmoil yeah. to an end, do you think that the United Nations... Uh, well, we know that the United Nations can be effective. Do you mm-hmm. think the United Nations is doing enough or doing things in the right approach mm-hmm. to resolve issues or do you think there's more that needs to be done? Um, When that uh, question normally comes up, I normally think to myself, what would happen now if the UN was not there? Yes. And it's chaos in my mind. Of course. (laughs) It is chaos. Because what the United Nations offers is a space where people ventilate and their frustrations. It is the only safe space where you find the ambassador of North Korea and the ambassador of the US yelling at each other 
but they're allowed to do so. Now imagine if there was no space to ventilate such issues. Then it would mean that countries would go back to pre-1914 where you do not know what the other person is thinking, they're planning, so you just think, let me forearm myself because I think that they might want to invade our country, for example. But because of the United Nations, of course, there are so many frameworks of cooperation in place. However, the world has really evolved ever since the UN was established. Mm -hmm. So I think it's about time the UN also evolved in line with these realities. Um, For example, Japan pays a lot of money for the UN to be in place. So to continue ignoring the role of the power of Japan within the UN is is, is, is not um, forward-looking, forward-thinking. So I think they just need to be some evolution in the UN so that it can be in line with the political realities of the world as it is structured. This thing of having the P5, the permanent, five permanent members who regard themselves higher than the rest of the world mm. is not helpful to the course of the UN. The five powers, of yes. course. Oh, I, I would agree with you 100% there. Yeah. The, um, would you like to see more done? Would you like mm. to see more countries do more to aid what to... Would you like to see more countries helping out more mm. uh, than they presently are? Uh, yes, I would. I would. I would wish to see more countries um, trading more with each other, as opposed to thinking in terms of aid. Mm-hmm. In fact, third world countries need more trade and not aid in order to prosper. Trade, not aid. Trade, not aid. Because aid creates dependency, you know, and dependency can cut across a, a whole generation. Um, but when you trade with each other, this value issues such as dignity that are maintained. People stop thinking of each other as superior, inferior. And a lot of the problems that we have at the moment, uh, such as corruption, is just because of how the trading system in the, in the world works at the moment. It is really highly tilted in favor of the North. Uh, things such as patenting, tariffs, and so on and so forth. If you look at the World Trade Organization system, it's very difficult to see how a third world country would come out of it based on that. Yeah. Especially if you try to go against them, the P5 will just gang up against you and squeeze you out of that kind of thought. Yeah. And we see that in many industries trying to nationalize, for example, because it suits them or trying to um, manufacture certain goods, but they're prevented to, especially in the pharmaceutical industry. There are certain plants, for example, that even for my country, we can't use commercially because they've been patented by uh, companies in the north. So because of this, people are not able to trade more and they'll be dependent, they'll be always behind. And with the population really rising that fast, people don't have opportunities, people start contestations, and violence is always just next door. Of course. Yeah. It's com- compared to the Australian system, I noticed everybody seems to have something. Houses. I mean, this is the only country I think where, when I came here, I got shocked that you can find a, a, a university lecturer staying on the same street as a plumber next door. That, that, that shows you that society is a bit egalitarian in a way. In uh, a lot of third world countries, that cannot happen. You mm. find 
people depending on economic class living in certain neighborhoods. And the, the, the lower job you have in terms of especially the blue-collar jobs, you live in the slums. That kind of situation cannot lead to sustainable peace. Yes. Yes. And if you look at it, uh, at the end of it all, it's about livelihoods. And there's nothing that brings better livelihoods than trading. Again, very well said. Yes. And I, I don't really want to tie into the. I don't want to tie into this next country that I'm going to bring up too too much. Yeah. But I do want to bring up the point that um, political, obviously, the nature of politics and the nature of political elections, political ruling, can mm. be very delicate, especially mm. in certain countries. And that delicate nature can be easily upset by another country mm-hmm. his election yeah and the reason i bring this up is i wanted to ask you when you look at the violence and the political issues that we mm-hmm. see in mm-hmm. third world countries such as kenya mm-hmm. um do you think that these sort of countries can mm-hmm. be negatively affected and were negatively affected when you have a country go from one leader mm-hmm. to a more extreme leader mm-hmm. for instance the rise of well, obviously, the uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil, mm-hmm. the far right president in Brazil that's just yeah. been elected for anybody that's not aware. Yeah. And of course, although I was hoping not to have to bring him up at any yeah. point, the current president of the United States, yes. uh, Donald Trump. Yeah. Do you think that the election of these two, mm. for example, because yeah. it's not limited to these two, yeah. and other extreme uh, presidents with the, or leaders with an extreme viewpoint can negatively affect? the smaller countries that are already in a state of I guess yeah political turmoil I think yeah yes yes it does I mean if it can affect the US which is a mature democracy Mm -hmm. then you can imagine the effects it would it would have on countries that are still nascent in democratization process Um, a country such as the US has a system elaborate system of checks and balances it's about the office and not the office holder it's yes. about institutions and their strengths. So in as much as you see currently, uh, as the head of the Senate minority in the U.S. keeps saying that when the president throws tantrums, there are certain things that they have in place to check his personal ambitions that are not in line with the national interest, for mm-hmm. example. But in a lot of third world countries, especially in Africa, the office and the office holder, the distinction is not very clear. Of course. So, and when you have a system where the winner takes it all, it means that when I come onto that office, I'm going to become a demigod, <laughs> so to speak. Yes. Everybody will have to listen to me and everybody will have to do what I say. And it's not, you're not going to be in that office in perpetuity. So at some point, maybe five, ten years, people will want you to be out. Some people want to extend. And then soon, there'll be contestations on how you need to go away. You need to be removed from office. And you don't want to go away because you've been doing things that are so bad. So you are already fearing that you'll be held onto account by the next leader. And that is what makes people fear a lot. Yeah. Would you like to, I guess then, would, do you think that uh, it would be better for these countries to move, obviously to Mm. improve their democracy and Mm. to improve uh, their democratic, I guess, their nature and the way that they mm. conduct the elections and the, like you said, the difference or the uh, the distinction, rather, between mm. the office and the office holder. Mm. 
would you prefer to see uh, countries go to more of a similar to Australia, like proportional based mm. as opposed to winner take all mm. results? Do you think that is a better way to go forward? Personally, I think so. I think um, the heart of our problems lies in the fact that uh, especially our political parties work in competition and not in cooperation. The South African model is especially um, notable to me because the reason they avoided um, going to civil war around 1994, 93 before the elections, is because the framework that they laid in place was one that encouraged cooperation and not competition. Of course. Because if they had gone the competition way, then there will be chaos because members, very small minority, control the economy and the military. That is the white South Africans. The black South Africans are the majority. So they would have come to political power and these contestations on who controls the economics and the military and the other one who controls the masses. But you saw that when Mandela came to power, the deputy president was de Klerk. Mm. And he encouraged that spirit of cooperation across the board. So I think the more people learn to work in cooperation rather than competition, the more people are going to demystify this whole political process, you know, and make it become less important as <laughs> a part of their day-to-day -day lives. Yes. And the only way to do that, I think, um, um, is to nurture this process over time, just to work, um, just reform the party system so that it's proportional, so that even though I am the minority, I do not have my way, but there's a system in place so that I can have my say. Yes. So that I'm not, I do not have my way and I'm completely locked out of having any say. That is what makes people fight, especially in Kenya. There is no inclusivity. People feel there is they and we. And we seem to be, since independence, for example, being subservient to they. So that we and they feeling comes about because of systemic marginalization. And it's all about the resources. Who controls the state's resources and how do they uh, bequeath the rest of the people? Quite. Yeah. The, um, unfortunately, we have been, we've been speaking for just over half an hour, so oh. I'm sort of just going to have to sort of wrap it up a little bit. Sure. Um, I want to say thank you again for coming in and sitting down and having a talk, like having this conversation. Yeah. I've really appreciated it, yeah. and we appreciate you being here. Thank um, you. Yeah. We'd, I'd like to say again, I'd like to say thank you for the research that you're doing, especially, like you said, the reason for doing it, I think, is a very good, is, a, is quite a noble cause. Um, okay. I think it sounds like you are doing a lot of good work, and I wish you thank all you. the best uh, completing the PhD. Thank you. <laughs> which is a big accomplishment for sure. Mm. So um, I've been here mm. conversing with uh, John Hare, a PhD mm. student at the University of New England. And if you have missed any of this conversation or if you were unable to catch the majority of it, it will be up on our podcasting website, Podbean, later on. You'll be able to uh, listen to it back there or download it. I'm just going to end by asking you a very... A question that would not be possible any time in the future. Okay. So we're talking very, very far down the line. Yes. But as somebody that is studying peace studies mm -hmm. and has a very good knowledge of the political uh, nature of other countries, particularly mm -hmm. those in the third, uh, particularly third world countries, mm -hmm. 
Do you think mm. that there would be any positive outcome in having the in essentially re- eliminating country leaders mm-hmm. and having basically having being so globalized that mm-hmm. there is one global leader? Wow. Um. <laughs> like I said, something that's not possible yeah. any time in the future. Well, if you ask any anarchist, they'll tell you, yeah, <laughs> a, <laughs> a time is going to come like that. But uh, given the way um, uh, the world is structured at the moment, the way we seek to control spheres of influences and use them to negotiate, then the way politics works, and it's not changed even from the 16th, the 1600s, we've been having the same system. I think it will even become worse. And uh, it's even going to be horrible because we are going to be fighting over water yes. more than fuel in the, in the future. I am. I certainly do. I personally think um, it is very far-fetched. Mm. Um, it's just uh, I've obviously, like I told you, I am fairly politically minded myself, and a lot yeah. of I've seen it. I've seen that idea popping up a lot recently for some okay. reason. The idea of a one lead, like one form of government for the entire planet. Uh-huh. And I wanted to get somebody else's viewpoint. Yeah, so thank um, you for that. That would really be nice. Now, when uh, I think about it, human beings like having identities. And uh, in as much as the system will be there, it will go back to what is the identity yeah. of this leader. And that will that is what is going to bring a lot of problems because identity issues of are the course. reason why we are here today <laughs> and with these conflicts that we have. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, well, uh, like I said again, thank you. Um, thank you very much for having me. Uh, trust me, it was our pleasure. Yeah. Um, hopefully we will get back. We'll be able to have another conversation with you soon. Yeah. But um, again, wish you all the best for your studies this year. Um, and we'll much. hope to see you graduate this year with your PhD. So, Inshallah. <laughs> that's good. That's good. That's what we like to hear. Yeah. I've been uh, Ben uh, here at Tune FM on 106.9 UNE Student Powered Radio. I've been talking with John Hare, who is a PhD student in peace studies focusing on political violence. You're listening to Tune FM on 106.9. And coming up, we have The War Song by Culture Club. Designed for you, it matters what you say. 